Hey, folks, thanks, and welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting along with my colleague, Bruce Kelly. We have a great show for you this week, but we want to thank, first of all, our sponsor, Broadridge Financial Solutions. Now we're talking to Bob Dahl, the chief and newly minted chief investment officer at Crossmark Global Investments. Bob, you might know him from his years at Nuveen Asset Management and before that, BlackRock. Bob has a huge following. He's a great prognosticator in the financial services space. He seems to know everything that's going to go on in the markets uh, at least one year ahead of time, which we appreciate. And uh, I've been following him for a long time. And uh, I can't wait for this conversation, Bob. This, is, this uh, isn't newly minted. This is like newly picked. This is so fresh. Yes, it was just days ago. He uh, he was yeah. joined uh, Crossmark. So, Bob, thanks for joining us. This is uh, this is going to yeah, be a fun conversation. Uh, my privilege. Uh, good good to good to be part of this uh, podcast. Thanks for the kind words. I wish they were half true. <laughs> well, that's what we that's what we strive for here on the investment News podcast we like to be half true all right 50 percent about yep yeah if, we, if we're not half true then you know we're we gotta we gotta we gotta turn it up a little bit so uh, first of all bob t- talk to us about this new gig i mean Crossmark is a uh it seems like a long ways uh both figuratively and literally from nuveen uh their cross is based in texas it looks like you're going to be based in Princeton, New Jersey, right? Yes, that's correct. So, so uh, when I joined Nuveen, based in Chicago, when I was in Princeton, New Jersey, I I guess Houston's a little farther from Princeton than Chicago is, but either way, you got to get on a plane. That's true. So, talk talk to us about why Crossmark. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a faith based organization. It's considerably smaller than Nuveen or BlackRock. Even if you combine Nuveen and BlackRock, that's a joke. <laughs> yeah, you're out of the limelight of Wall Street, Bob, here. It's it's kind of a curious, I'm sure you could have had your pick, right? Well, of I name think, banks I, and, and the like, but you have been known in the industry to, to have kind of a values-based outlook and and the like too. So it's 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 a curious move. Yeah. So um good good observations. Crossmark brings a lot of things together. First of all, you already mentioned it, it's small, which makes it possible to be very entrepreneurial. And they do have an entrepreneurial culture. And when you're part of a firm that's uh, only 50 people in size, if you do something smart, you can make a difference for the firm. And that's kind of cool. The second is, and you already touched on this one as well, values-based investment management. It fits my personal views and my background. I was, while at Nuveen, sub-advising some values-based portfolios and really enjoyed those because I think it brings a lot, of, a lot of things together. But I'd also say, I guess, two more things why Crossmark, the quality of the people. I mean, you always say they're good people, but, but there are good people, both professionally and personally. I've enjoyed getting to know them in the process and, and now in these early days. Among values-based money managers, among faith-based firms, there aren't a whole lot of them, and most of them are small. What Crossmark has is, is breadth of platform. It's equities and fixed income. It's mutual funds and separately managed accounts. 
It's active and passive money management. So it's got a it's got a plethora of arrows in the quiver, and uh, I'm hoping to you know grow all of the above because we can leverage um, the talent and the platform that's here and create a firm that uh, grows for the benefit of all our clients. What does that mean, though, Bob? Values based investing, just as kind of ah. a plain language. I mean, and you personally, I think you've been known in the industry to speak at. Christian investing groups and and the like, and I think in the past. So how does it match up with you, who you are, basically? Yeah, so so you're wise to observe that. And while I will still have a, quote, voice in secular space through our commentary and predictions and the like, right. I'll also have a now more direct than I've had in the past view into and voice into values-based investment management. I guess, what is that? Well, depends on the person you're talking to. Right. That's one of the beauties <laughs> of Crossmark. Right. They have separately managed accounts. So, if, you know, if you come to me and say, you know, my my beliefs are that I can invest in companies uh, that start with letters A through L, but, you know, M through the Z uh, alphabet, that's against my values. We can make that portfolio for you or anything else. Now, we do have for our standard, if somebody comes to us and says, you know, I want to invest the way you guys see it. Well, we'll start by excluding companies that aren't, uh, in, our, in our view, and most people's view, are, are not part of making the world a better place. Tobacco, pornography, for example. But we'll also, where clients want us to, accentuate good things. Yeah, you, you got to start with good companies, good businesses, good management, reasonable prices. The, the th same thing I've done all my career. But when you can layer these other things on top, it gives you a more interesting portfolio. What do I mean by that? Well, we want companies who promote justice, promote family values. Are they treating their employees, their community, their environment well? That sort of thing. So we're not going to buy a company that's doing good, but it's a lousy company. But if it's a good company and is doing good, there's there's a, a marriage made in heaven. Hey, Bob, do you envision any any kind of new areas in terms of products that might come on a cross mark now that you're you're there having an influence as chief investment officer? Yeah, and also distribution, Bob. If you could talk about product and distribution, you know, sure. RIAs, warehouses, IBDs, etc. Right. So, so from a product standpoint, I mean, you, you guys know what I've done all my life: large cap U.S. in mutual funds and SMA format, and that's exactly what I'll do, both long and long short, in active equity space in large cap. Crossmark doesn't have enough product, and that's part of the reason I was attracted to them, and they were attractive to me. So we'll be adding those kinds of strategies going forward, and what will be new to Crossmark are things that are long, short, in orientation. I mean, the stock market's kind of gone straight up for a long time. At some point, it's going to have some bumps, and people are going to want alternative products, and uh, until now, Crossmark doesn't have them, but they will soon. How about distribution? distribution? Yeah, uh, on di distribution If they side, hire a big gun like you, I'm sure that they're going to make other hires in terms of, you know, wholesaling and distribution into 
channels that they're not right now. I mean, you're wonderful and you're great and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, they got to have a sales team around you too, right? Correct. And they have some, but as everybody here, right up to the CEO would say, not enough. In fact, the day I started uh, earlier this week, another wholesaler started and there will be more added over time because I come back to the platform is built out. The company's got good, needs a few more products, and hopefully I'll be able to help provide those. But then it's got to get the message out, and we need to invest more in uh, sales and distribution. Marketing is also really good here, but we need the face-to-face, press the flesh, develop, maintain, and enhance relationships, and that will come through a uh, larger sales force. Hey, Bob, we always hear at Investment News make a big deal out of your uh, your annual 10 predictions, which you sometimes, I guess, upgrade or update at mid-year. Now, you're still going to be doing those at Crossmark, right? That's not going away? We're still going to get that? That is correct. From uh, December 31st, we'll have a new set for 2022. Uh, the only thing we've done in the middle of the year is grade ourselves on what we've done so far. Yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than we don't come out with new ones. Although, I maybe you were picking up on this, last year is the first time I did in April issue a second set. Reason, COVID. Nobody yeah. anticipated. So I said to my colleagues at Nuveen at the time, Hey, we want to be relevant and helpful to people. And these predictions did not include a pandemic. We'll come out with a new list. Now, we still were graded according to the ones we came out with at the first of the year. So we got, we got more than our usual share wrong. But yes, um, bottom line, we will continue with the 10 predictions and looking forward to it. Yeah, those things are uh, wildly popular. I can't imagine how many lawyers you had to have to get uh, new. Our readers <laughs> love them. That you have those. Yeah, that's good. And that's we talked good. about well, this last time, right, Jeff? With yeah, with Bob, yes. that how 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 the readers just just have for years have been eating Bob's predictions up. You know. Yeah, well, I'm gl- glad to hear that, and we're happy to provide them. Look, right or wrong, our goal is to make people think, uh, provide some opinions, some rationale for, it. and what we get. Constant feedback on is the fact that we grade ourselves at the end of the year rather than walking away from them really adds some credibility. So uh, end of this year, we'll get somebody to grade us on the outside independent for 2021 and come out with a new list for 22. Bob, did you propose a values-based fund to Nuveen? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. And uh, what did I they say? In- and why did you why did you leave other than for the yeah, so so uh, at the time, and I respect Nuveen for this, they were narrowing the list of product offerings and didn't want new mutual funds. They said, you know, SMA will consider it that right. uh, you could probably do that. But uh, we're shrinking, not enhancing the number of mutual funds we have. And so that's why they show. Well, that's it. the actively managed mutual fund world, right? It's it's Bingo. again, it's it's counterintuitive. You're kind of jumping into a small firm, not a big firm, and you're trying to launch a new kind of actively managed, you know, series of funds here in a in a in a world that's going indexed ETF. Yeah, no question. The indexed ETF is a very popular vehicle. It will continue to be. My personal view, and I know a lot of people have said this for a lot of years, is that we're heading into an environment where markets are not going to go up 15% a year and where there'll be enough fundamental differences that owning the right stocks and avoiding or shorting the wrong stocks will win. So we think uh, we're coming into an active management period. And look, in this space, 
faith slash values-based space. There are a lot of people looking for active product. It's a small part of the money management world, but growing very quickly. Huh. And where's the demand coming from? Primarily faith-based advisors and faith-based clients. Oh, okay. You know, stepping back and saying, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what I'm going to do with my money, how I might be giving it away, et cetera, et cetera. But I've not spent a whole lot of time thinking about how I've invested my money. And that's what this space is about. You know, I, in my due diligence uh, before um, thinking about joining this space, lock, stock and barrel was to talk to some people. So have you ever thought about the index 500, uh, S&P 500 index fund, you know, how do you, how do you feel about the tobacco stocks you own? How do you feel about the pornography stocks that you own? Oh, do I own those? Well, if you own the S&P 500, you do. And they come back and say, could you create a product that excluded those and still gave me broad exposure to the S&P 500? So there is some demand. Some, some people out there won't care about it. I get that. I respect that. But lots of people do care. Hey, uh, Bob, I, I write a lot about ESG investing. And a lot of the more often than not, people trace the origins of, of ESG to faith-based investing. That was kind of like the original even though they were attributed to being negative screens, which which ESG has kind of moved beyond that now, but that is a, a big part of it. Do you see anything like that coming out of Crossmark? So answer is uh, yes, there is. Look, I, I put it this way. Values-based products are a subset of ESG and faith-based products are a subset of values-based products. So there is overlap in the analysis and the selection process. So ESG tools are a great way to start to create a values-based product. It's not the end game, but it's a great way to start. Uh, Crossmark will have products that exclude the bad stuff, but accentuate the good stuff. We talked about your, uh, your annual predictions. I happen to have the 2020 predictions on my screen right now. And um, the uh, a couple were they had were they fifty percent true, Jeff, or, uh, or what? A little better than that, uh, a lot better than that, actually. Um, a couple things stand out here, um, and I know this was was started this this trend kind of started toward the end of twenty twenty, but uh, you you seem to have nailed this uh, value and uh, small cap stock run, which we're seeing right now. Do you see that as uh, is that something that's just a first part of the year flash in the pan or, or do you really think do you still think value in small caps can outperform growth in large caps this year well, first of all thanks for starting one that we're getting right i appreciate you doing that look but you know here, here in june that i expect that we'd have value over growth and small over big by this magnitude no mm -hmm. but on the other hand the spring was coiled pretty significantly and I do think there is more to come. For value and small to work, we're generally going to have to continue to have a decent economy, decent earnings, when I think we will get both of those. So I'm still on that bandwagon, recognizing there's a lot of money in the bank if you've played that game year to date. Okay. Inflation. Everybody is talking about inflation. You predicted that inflation will approach 2%. And the 10-year Treasury will uh, reach 1.5%. Depending on how you measure inflation, it, it's it's over 2% right now. What what are you what are your thoughts on inflation? I mean, I yeah. I, I wrote so, a so to, 
to the prediction itself. Remember, we make these in December of the prior year mm -hmm. and one and a half 10 year treasury when it was at 93 basis points and 2% inflation. They were at the lunatic fringe. I got a lot of people saying, Bob, what are you looking at? There's no oh, yeah. way interest rates and inflation are going that high. And of course, within a couple of months, they went past those targets. My view is there is some inflation that is transitory, to use the Fed's words, but not all of it. I think we are, hey, look, we've thrown a ton of money at the system. And one of the classic definitions of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Well, you all know how much money there is out there sloshing around, and we actually have some supply shortages. So you put those things, two things together, we're going to get some inflation. Uh, you know, I, we're not going to get, in my opinion, you know, high single digit or low double digit inflation that us old guys remember from not that many decades ago. But it's not the, the era of zero to two percent inflation, I think, is behind us. The, the Fed is basically big for some inflation. Be careful what you wish for. They're going to get it. And then some. Mm -hmm. Here's another one that seems to be uh, in the wind column. U.S. Uh, real GDP increases at its fastest pace in 20 years. Yeah. That, that was, again, a, a bit of a controversial one. Is it really going to be that strong? But the truth is, it looks like our economy with the strongest has been in 34 years. A, a function of, you know, this, not billions, trillions of dollars of money uh, laid out by the fiscal authorities, the Fed and other central bankers around the world providing incredible ease, the pandemic uh, winding down to some degree as vaccinations have caused people to come out from under the covers and go outside and spend a little money. All of that together is creating an, an amazing U.S. economy. Real GDP this year, as you guys know, is, is likely to be at least 6%, maybe higher. Yeah. Hey, hey Bob, are you telling me that I, I shouldn't be busting out my old, uh, what were they, whip inflation now buttons from the 70s? <laughs> Or you those know, win the win buttons whip inflation yeah, now, right? Button. So maybe small letters, not capital letters. Yeah. That may be appropriate. <laughs> Keep it handy, Bruce. You uh you <laughs> before you know it. I I got a collector set from 1978, man. There you go. You weren't even born in 1978. Oh, I was an old man already in 78, son. Bob, I, I'm not gonna go through all these, but I have just two more on this. I wanna I wanna get your comments on or updates on. U.S. federal debt will rise to more than 100% of GDP on its way to an all-time high. We're there, right? Yes, we are. That one, uh, that one is, at this point, like shooting fish in a barrel. We'll get that one right with our eyes closed. But uh, the, the ongoing point, if I showed you all my slides, is to date, it really hasn't mattered. I put that prediction in, in, uh, in part because people are asking all the time. And the truth is, because interest rates until last few months, have fallen faster than the debt has gone up. Interest expense as a percentage of our economy or as a percentage of the federal budget has actually continued to come down. That's why it's not been an issue. So if debt keeps going up like it is, which for the foreseeable future, sadly, looks like the case, and interest rates move up some more, then it begins to become an issue that we have to worry about. So that's part of the reason I, I, I took the time to do that prediction. Yeah, well, now you're talking like a modern monetary theory guy. <laughs> yeah, mean, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, only, I'm, I'm not even really joking. I mean, this right. is, that's the mindset that the debt doesn't matter as long as we keep rates low enough so we can manage it. 
Uh, what do you exactly right? And and part of the reason people are emboldened to say that is because until now they've generally been right. It hasn't mattered, right? But it's only because interest rates went down the you know under fifty basis points for the ten year Treasury. That's not well. It hasn't lasted. You know, we're not at fifty anymore. We're at one fifty plus. So you know, we are borrowing from the future. This is going to slow our growth long term. And you know, there's several ways out of it. One is. Is, is to cut the amount of money you spend, unlikely. Two is to raise taxes a lot, not much fun. And thirdly, is the currency is the great adjuster and you get a downward move in the dollar, which is my fear. All right, speaking of bad ideas, I'm going to go to the last, your last prediction. Compromise in, amid political polarization. Despite polarization, President Joe Biden, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and moderate, moderate forces will achieve some compromise legislation. Where is that? Yeah, that's that one's wrong. <laughs> so, so we to refresh to give me my 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 alibi. We made these in December, as we always do, issued the first of the year prior to the Georgia runoff Senate elections. The assumption by us and everybody was that Republicans win would win at least one of those two seats, if not both. And of course, they came up empty empty handed which means the Democrats had 50 plus the vice presidential tie. And so that was the, the day that election happened in January, this prediction was dead. Okay. And then the uh, anything else not on the list, just it's, it's June now, any kind of other mid-year outlook tidbit you want to share with us? Yeah, I, I, I throw on the list, which comes up from time to time, but not nearly enough in my view. And that is all the geopolitical issues that seem to be simmering. I think our ninth prediction was about uh, China, but it's it's not just China. It's you know we've got the Middle East, we've got Russia, the cybersecurity issues. I mean, it, there there are enough warm spots around the world that could become hot spots that I think markets have to keep their eye on. All right, Bruce. Anything else for the amazing Bob Dahl? I just want to know if I can use my my whip inflation now button collection as a hedge on inflation in the future. You know, that's a great idea. And turn you it into some sell- Bitcoin or some uh, non fungible token or something, Bob. Or, I mean, or, or just sell it at a high price to somebody. <laughs> yeah, there. I like that. That's as simple as it gets. Find, find, find some of those. I rocks. trade it for some AMC stock or something. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh my! No, that's it. All right. Well, hey, Bob, thank you very much for being here. We're 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 going to get you back. Your second time on the podcast There's only a few people that have uh, crested. An elite that. group, Bob, a very elite well, group. Well, it's very, very kind. I would look forward to that, guys. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. Thanks. All the best. All the best. Bye-bye. The financial industry runs on Broadridge. We provide the infrastructure that powers the trades, communications, and insights you rely on every day. As a global fintech, we deliver the next-gen solutions that promote resilience, digitization, and greater success, so you can run your business with confidence. What you do next matters most. We can help. Broadridge, ready for next. Okay, folks, now we have Susan Schroeder, Vice Chair, Securities and Financial Institutions Department at Wilmer Hale and a former head of enforcement at FINRA. Susan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. 
This is going to be fun. All things that Bruce and I love to talk about, and uh, we'll make you talk about it whether you like it or not, because that's the way we are. Bruce, I think you have the first question, buddy. Yeah, well, just a comment. First, while we were chatting, waiting to get this started, Susan and I discovered that both our daughters are freshmen at the same high school in Manhattan. So hang in there, mom, you know? <laughs> Thank you. Hang in there yourself. It's been okay. quite a year. What a year. So. Susan, thanks very much for spending a couple of minutes with us. We want to talk about what you're seeing as, as uh, you know, big priorities and hurdles, right, for the securities industry, the retail-facing broker-dealer or RIA, your clients there. Uh, but first, you know, just a couple of things to, to shoot at you, shoot your way. It seems like the industry got its way with getting rid of the DOL fiduciary rule. And if you could comment on that, and then just also, first off, why not tell us a little bit about yourself? You were at FINRA for a long time there. And, you know, what did you do at FINRA and what are you doing right now for Wilmer Hale before we get into the into these other issues, perhaps? Certainly. So I actually was a, a lawyer at Wilmer Hale in the securities department doing uh, securities enforcement work when I left for FINRA back in 2011. And I spent eight years within the enforcement group at FINRA, first as the deputy head of enforcement, and then as the head of enforcement, where I managed the enforcement group. That's about 300 lawyers and investigators who investigate individuals and broker dealers for potential violations of the securities laws and the FINRA rules. And How do you corral 300 lawyers? <laughs> um, they argue a lot. <laughs> no. <laughs> and what were some of the big enforcement actions, the prominent enforcement actions that your group brought at FINRA when you were the head there, just to kind of remind us a little bit? Well, it depends on what you mean by big. You know, the ones that I remember the most are right. the ones that involved, that involved broker dealers that really were enga engaged in bad activity. And those often were cases that were tried, that FINRA won matters against firms such as John Thomas Financial a matter against a firm run by a gentleman named George Karras. Those are all public decisions that FINRA won that involved fraud and wrongdoing by member firms. And that those cases are the nearest and dearest to my heart. I remember John Thomas well. We covered them. You must have seen some of the coverage, but the Tommy Belisis and Tommy John Belisi. Thomas and oh my gosh, people are still calling me up with with stories about Tommy Belisis and where he is in the world right now and what he's doing. You know Is that right? Yeah. Yes. That was a that was quite a case. John Thomas, I know very well. It's a fascinating case. People can look it up, our coverage on John Thomas if they want. Thanks for all that background, Susan. But back to my other comment, industry got its, the industry, it seems to me, didn't want to have the DOL. They, you know, a, a Republican got elected in 2016. The DOL fiduciary rule was killed. Now we have Reg BI. How does that fit into what you do at, at Wilmer Hale? It's, it's very important to what I do at Wilmer right. And the, the DOL fiduciary rule occurred against a larger backdrop of a fiduciary rule discussion, right? So coming out of yes. Dodd-Frank, the SEC was instructed to review whether it should create a joint fiduciary rule that would hold investment advisors and broker-dealers to the same standard, to a fiduciary standard, right. which does not exist today. And as the years passed and the SEC it did not move towards implementing a fiduciary rule, the DOL took it on itself. Now, that would have been sort of a nightmare because a DOL rule only applies to ERISA accounts. And so for a firm to try to 
implement the DOL rule for certain types of accounts and not others would have been, I think, just logistically incredibly trying. So it was a victory, I think, for the industry that DOL rule did not end up getting implemented. And instead, we saw Reg BI, which was the Republican administration's, I think, response to that continuing pressure to shore up investor protection, but fall short of of actually imposing a fiduciary rule on broker dealers. Right. That being said, Reg BI, I think, is going to be the biggest thing that has happened to retail broker dealers uh, in 50 years, if not more. I really do think it's going to change the landscape. It's not a fiduciary rule on its face, but I think it gives the SEC a lot of tools that the SEC did not already have. And if I'm sort of interpreting correctly what the new chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, has been saying, I expect that the SEC will look to enforce Reg BI very aggressively. Huh, that's interesting. Could you give me like a, a hypothetical or something that were an obvious hypothetical that might come to play for a brokerage firm? When it comes to, you know, Reg BI enforcement, something they should be looking for? Yeah. So one example of the way in which Reg BI, I think, gives enforcement many more tools than it previously had. A good example is quantitative suitability. So it used to be that for the SEC to bring a case against a firm for churning, right, excessive trading in order to generate commissions, the SEC had to prove that the broker dealer had control over the account which can be very difficult to prove. Often broker dealers will you know, ask their customers to sign a document saying that the customer controls the account. Customers might not want to admit, even if it is a, you know, a bad broker dealer that's kind of controlling the customer's trading, customers might not want to admit that. And so regulators often had a hard time proving churning because they couldn't prove that control element. Reg BI does away with the control element. As long as the SEC can show that you recommended a series of transactions to a customer, you can be on the hook for a violation of Reg BI for basically recommending excessive trading. It lowers the bar for the regulators pretty significantly. And churning is interesting because if it if it's a certain kind of client, uh, an elderly person, you can get into the penalty period of penalty area, right, of damages based on elder abuse and things like that. That happens too, right? Certainly. I mean, the, the, the age of a victim or the whether if, if a victim is particularly vulnerable, FINRA actually has a sanctioned guideline that's considered to be an aggravating factor and the penalty should be higher. Susan, I'd like to know what you think FINRA's relationship with the SEC will be like under Gary Gensler's leadership. FINRA's relationship with the SEC is always first and foremost, a relationship between a regulated entity and a regulator. The Mm -hmm. SEC regulates FINRA. And so FINRA, I think, is very mindful of the fact that it, in some ways, is reliant on the SEC for its continued existence. FINRA does not want to upset the SEC in the same way that most broker-dealers don't want to upset their primary regulators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, (laughs) So I I don't They're walking on eggshells over there. Is that what you're saying, Susan? You know, they're cautious, especially in a time like this when Reg BI is new. Right. is going to be one of the primary actors enforcing Reg BI. I do expect them to be cautious, however. They are not going to want to get out ahead of their skis and take positions that the SEC would not agree with. FINRA, I think, will likely say Reg BI is the SEC's rule and we follow the SEC's lead. 
I don't expect FINRA to be a thought leader in that space. Well, FINRA is a very cautious organization to begin with. In my mind, my 20 years plus of observation of of the group, they don't want to get, you you know, they're not an aggressive organization by, by my perception. You've clearly never heard the things that are said to a head of enforcement at FINRA. <laughs> <laughs> like what? <laughs> Listen, nobody likes nobody likes being the subject of an enforcement action or an yes. enforcement investigation. And so I think enforcement should be a, a cautious part of an organization. Right. But but I think overall, FINRA has been a more reactive than proactive organization in many ways. And it's Interesting to see some of the issues that are now coming to the forefront of the dialogue about the market, issues like payment for order flow, for example, hmm. um, to see, you know, how quickly FINRA will respond to some of those issues that are really in FINRA's wheelhouse. I want to I talk about for a minute about expungement reform. That's a big deal with, <laughs> with FINRA, obviously. It might sound a little too in the weeds to some of our more casual listeners, but uh, I know this is fun for you, Susan. Do you think the SEC will demand that FINRA take bolder actions to clean up expungement and crack down on rogue brokers? I think that whether the pressure comes from the SEC or the pressure comes from the political left, FINRA will continue to feel a great deal of pressure to deal with rogue brokers. And expungement is one aspect of what FINRA needs to deal with in the rogue broker space. Some of FINRA's new rules are also directed at you know, making sure FINRA can defend its record on rogue brokers. Mm-hmm. It is difficult for FINRA. It's, it's not an easy road to maneuver. It can often be difficult to prove after the fact whether or not expungement is, of the record is the right thing to do. And it I feels like a no-win situation for FINRA in a lot of ways, the expungement debate. It does. It, it, it really does. And when you, it's easy to step back and just say these records shouldn't be expunged. But when you look underneath at some of these details, I mean, brokers can be wrongly accused, and these records can be be smirched for a long time. It's very true. I mean, brokers are, I, I feel for them, they're much like lawyers in that your reputation is your livelihood. And if you are wrongly accused of something publicly, that is a very significant blow to your livelihood, to your ability to support your family. So I think keeping the pressure on to ensure that public disclosures are accurate is 100% necessary. But, you know, the counterpoint to that is going to be continued pressure to make sure that rogue brokers are not given any tools that allow them to fly under the radar screen and, you know, sort of mask their bad activity. Our colleague Mark Sheff wrote a story just about a week ago about FINRA's withdrawal of an expungement reform proposal. Is that in any way a signal that the SEC will be tougher on reviewing FINRA's proposed rule changes, do you think? It may be. I mean, FINRA, in my experience, FINRA is not likely to submit a a proposed rule change without a great deal of vetting and discussion. As, As we talked about before, FINRA is a conservative organization and will want to work its way through any type of rule proposal or even comment request for comment very carefully. So when FINRA withdraws something, it can signal a change in the wind, right? A change in direction. Okay. I love you the way you answer questions. You talk just like a lawyer. You don't waste any words. Pause. <laughs> and, think. and then I'm like, oh no, here comes a good one. 
Well, when you get paid by the word, you know. <laughs> no, that's us. They get paid by the, by, the, by the six minute mark or something. I don't know. Six minutes. I six mean, minutes. This, this is costing us a fortune, Bruce. I don't know if you know. Oh, that. my Talking gosh. <laughs> hey, what can you tell us about Robert Cook over there? You've been there almost four years. I think one of his first moves was to launch FINRA 360, a self-examination initiative to, I guess, that has led to more transparency about yeah, the Yeah, he's the CEO of FINRA for people yes. who don't know. Yep. Yes, sorry about that. What, what are your, what's the scouting report on him, Susan? Yeah, when he came over, his, his initiative was, as you say, FINRA 360, providing more transparency to the member firms, and I think he has done a good job of that, and collect information about the ways in which FINRA could do its job better. And so you saw some big changes in the early years of Mr. Cook's tenure. For example, while I was the head of enforcement, he combined what happened two different enforcement groups into a single group for, for purposes of consistency. And that was the New York Stock Exchange group, right? With, with enforcement. It was, it was actually sort of, yes. That, that's a good way to think about it. That's right. right. It was that had been doing market regulation enforcement that had moved over from the New York Stock Exchange. That's right. right. An even bigger change as a result of FINRA 360 was integration of certain aspects of the exam program into a, a differently shaped exam program. It's interesting. I think a lot of the changes at FINRA have, have not been as total as they could have been. Um, I think you still will hear member firms, for example, talking about interfacing with different aspects of the exam program that are more fragmented than member firms want them to be. But I think there's been some progress. Well, I think uh, Cook took over for Rick Ketchum, right? And that's right. I remember Rick when he was back at the NASDAQ or, or even the NYSE, right? So I think that the industry was annoyed with Rick Ketchum kind of as an, as a lifelong or mostly lifelong regulator and and they were really pissed off at the fines <laughs> that you enforcement people were hammering them with coming out of the credit crisis i think you know there was the you know the 2007 8 9 market debacle there was a lot of poorly managed and and unethical financial People trying to pretend that they were financial advisors out there. Bernie Madoff, the most notable and famous, Alan Stanford. And then there were all these mini Madoffs all over the country. And I think the industry felt like it was getting beat up under Rick Ketchum. And they were pretty happy with Robert Cook. I don't know if you can speak to, to, to that perception or not. But I think that kind of triggered the FINRA 360 that Jeff mentioned. I think that's probably fair. I think that the FINRA 360 was a, le a listening exercise for FINRA senior staff. I took the job running enforcement in 2017, about a year after Mr. Cook came to FINRA. I heard a lot from member firms about what they perceived as unfair enforcement activity, including the size of fines, including the way that fines were calculated. And listen, I, I challenge you to find any head of enforcement who has not heard all exactly the same things. Regardless. You're not going to win a lot of popularity contests in the securities industry, I think, Susan, not. if you don't mind me saying. No, 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 no. It's true. It's true. <laughs> You're just not. And so, I, you know, I, everything I heard, I would have expected to hear because nobody wants enforcement. Right. But I think that the the uh, the member firms wanted that platform and, you know, wanted to be heard. 
And FINRA 360 was a way of creating that. It was very smart. It was very smart. Susan, the, the last question that I have for you is, is with all of your experience inside and outside of FINRA, but obviously focusing on this general area, where do you see right now, and, and maybe considering the who we have in, in power in Washington, where do you see as the kind of gaps in the regulatory system regarding the financial services industry? I think crypto is the biggest gap of a glaring one. I think during the past four or five years, Regulators have struggled to really identify who owns crypto and what it is and what rule set, what rule set it fits into. And as a result, I think New York, the, the New York DFS has become the, the de facto crypto regulator. But there's still not a lot of clarity around how crypto is going to work. And I think crypto is, it seems to be here to stay. So I'm surprised there isn't a more coherent effort yet to formulate a more organized federal approach to crypto. That's fascinating. We'll have to, when, when something like that pops up, we'll have to have you back. Susan, it would be my pleasure. Yeah, Absolutely. Sure. Susan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of The Investment News podcasts. As all our listeners out there know, we launch on Mondays. We want to thank our sponsor this week, Broadridge Financial Solutions, a big company, a global company that does all kinds of brokerage services, including proxy statements and annual reports and the like, all kinds of communication services for firms. We also want to thank our special guests, Bob Dahl and Susan Schroeder. Hey, and we also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our number one producer. You can find the Investment News Podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach Jeff on Twitter, at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>